Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. When I became a dad about uh, five and a half years ago, a lot of things changed. Uh, I started walking through the house and turning off lights. I don't know what's up with dads doing that. I, I started caring more about how my lawn looked. I, I started making really bad dad jokes, but I kind of did that all along. So, but, but one big thing I noticed was this newfound paternal instinct. I had this fatherly duty to want to provide for and protect my kids. I, I want to make sure they didn't get hurt, nothing bad happened. For example, recently I was on a walk with my kids through our neighborhood, and we walked by one house in particular. It had a tall privacy fence, and on the other side of the fence I heard this loud, deep, woof, woof. And this dog somehow stuck his head over this six-foot-tall fence, and he was growling and barking. It was like the dog from the Sandlot, if you remember that movie. So my dad radar went off, and I just started thinking. I thought, okay, if this dog jumps this fence and he comes after us, what am I going to do? Am I going to pick him up and try to run? Do I fight? I've never been in a fight in my life, much less with a dog. But I would, you know, I would wrestle a bear to protect my children if I needed to. Well, of course, the dog couldn't get over the fence, and so nothing happened, and I felt kind of silly. But if you're a parent, you understand that emotion. If I believed my kids were in danger or were going to be harmed in some way, there's nothing I wouldn't do to save them. But let me take this a step further. I'm going to go a bit extreme here, but hang with me. Imagine if your child had been kidnapped and made a slave. They were trapped and being held by horrible people. That's like nightmare, like worst case scenario type stuff. What would you do? Is there anything that would stop you from going and finding them and rescuing them? I don't know about you, but I would go like full Liam Neeson and go and try and take out the bad guys like that movie they made. And I'm guessing you would do the same because that would be absolutely horrible. But you see, that's the lens in which we need to view this entire Exodus story. These people that Egypt had taken into slavery and were abusing and killing, these were not just some random group of people. These were God's children, a people God had chosen, made a covenant with, and called them his firstborn son. With that in mind, we can begin to see why God acted the way he did. He's acting like a father rescuing his children and taking out those who were harming them and holding them captive. That's what we saw last week when we talked about the crossing of the Red Sea. Even though Pharaoh had let the people go after the ten plagues, he changed his mind and he decided to pursue them. He met them at the Red Sea and he had his entire army prepared to capture them and take them back to slavery. So God acted by rescuing his children. Through Moses, he parted the sea and they crossed through on dry ground. And then he released the waters to take out their enemies, the bad guys who had harmed and killed his people. And now, on the other side of the Red Sea, with nothing more to worry about or to fear, God's people have a moment to rest and to appreciate what's just happened to them. They are finally free from centuries of oppression. No longer slaves, they've become a nation. A nation with Yahweh, the almighty one true living God, as their God and their father. Exodus chapter 15 is their response to God's rescue and redemption. It's their moment to celebrate and mark the victory they've received from the Lord. 
And they do so with a song, a song we traditionally call the Song of Moses. This morning, let's walk through this song piece by piece. And at the end, I will show you what this victory song means for us today. Look with me at Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Let's just consider first the simple fact that Moses and the Israelites sang a song. Think about it. They just witnessed the most insane thing they'd ever seen in their lives. The sea parted in two and they walked through on dry ground. They just experienced the greatest moment of their lives, complete and total freedom from slavery and abuse that had gone on for centuries. And they respond with a song. Why did he do that? Because here's what we learn in the Bible. Singing to God pleases the Lord. God created us to sing, to express our hearts through song, and he wants his people to be a singing people. You don't believe me? Listen to this. The Bible contains over 400 references to singing. There are 50 direct commands to sing. Did you know that you were commanded actually to sing? Longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, is a book of songs. It was the hymn book of Israel. Jesus, on the night he was arrested, not only instituted the Lord's Supper and prayed and encouraged his disciples and washed their feet, he also sang with them. The Apostle Paul commanded the early church twice in Ephesians and Colossians to sing together. And greatest of all, God himself is said to be a singer. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will exult over you with loud singing. Now, there are two responses after hearing this. There's one group here, a smaller group, and you are so excited to hear this. <laughs> you love to sing, not just in church, but in the car, in the shower. You might even sing in Walmart. We all know those people. But then there's another group here, probably the larger group of us, who isn't as fond of singing. Some of you even despise singing. You think it's silly. In fact, some of you may view singing as something you just endure before getting to the sermon. If Jeremy sings too many songs, you get all impatient with him. And I've even known some Christians who would skip the singing portion of the service and just wait and come in once the sermon starts. And look, I used to be in that second category. In my teenage years, I was that guy, that kid. I had my hands in my pockets, a scowl on my face, and you couldn't pay me money to sing out loud. But it was my senior year of high school. I learned to play the guitar, and God changed my heart. And I've since loved to sing. Look, I don't go around breaking into a Broadway musical. That's Jeremy. That's what he does. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he, he really doesn't, but I like to pick on him. But if you were to put a microphone in our house, you would hear us singing a lot. I have come to so appreciate the reason God has gave, given us singing and music. So let me tell you something this morning that I needed someone to tell me once upon a time. Worshiping God through music. And singing brings him glory, and it brings you joy. And we are called to sing. 
I did not say we are called to necessarily sing well. God has not gifted all of us with a beautiful voice. He said make a joyful noise, not a pleasant one. And we're not called to love every style of music and every song we hear. But singing in worship is not about our preferences, what we like or dislike. And it's not about the people on the stage. This is not a performance. It's about bringing glory to God and giving him the worship and honor that he alone is due. So think with me about this question. Does my posture in worship, the way I stand, the way I use my hands, the way I use my voice or don't use my voice, does that honor the Lord? Do those things portray on the outside what I say I believe on the inside about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? It's something we need to think about. And don't miss the fact that in the Bible, God's people usually sang together. There's nothing wrong with solos or singing in the shower, if that's your thing. But the pattern we see in the Bible is people singing together as one. One fascinating thing about Paul's command in the New Testament to sing is that he calls the church to sing to one another. We're not only singing to God when we worship, we're actually singing to each other. We're declaring truth to one another, encouraging one another with our voices. That's why we should sing loud enough so the person sitting next to us can hear us. I didn't say the person sitting on the other side of the auditorium necessarily. But we should sing so the entire congregation can be heard together. We need your voice. We need all voices so we can be one and not just the voices coming through the speakers. God wants us to be a singing people. It's a pattern we see throughout the entire Bible, and one day in eternity, we will sing together whether you're ready or not. So listen to me. The first half of the service is not some sort of precursor or warm-up or optional portion. Do your best to get to your seat on time. Prepare your heart and sing. And Man, now would be a great time to break out in song, wouldn't it? <laughs> not going to do that yet. Yet. But let's look now at the content of this song that Moses and the Israelites sang. In those first three verses we read, we begin to see a theme of this song. This is a victory song, a song about God's deliverance. But here's the curious part. This is a song of praise not only for rescuing God's people, it's also a song of praise for the destruction of God's enemies. And that's something that might come across as strange or maybe even wrong to us. I mean... I can understand singing about God's love and mercy, but are we really going to sing about the death of people? Does God really throw people into the sea and kill them? Is God really a man of war? Does he really have enemies? The answer to those questions is yes. The Bible teaches us that God does have enemies, those who oppose him and his work. His chief enemy we know is Satan. But oftentimes, people or nations oppose God and attack his people and his plans. And we know that when they do, God will defend his people. We're going to see this over and over throughout the book of Exodus. God is a warrior who fights for his people in order to vanquish their enemies. The question we might wrestle with, and lots of people have, including me, is this. Is it right for God to kill people? First, we need to understand that all that God does is right because he is God. 
He cannot do and does not do evil to anyone. All his ways are good and just and right. Second, we need to understand that God is the author and giver of life. He gives it and he takes it, as Job says. What God created, he has the full authority to do whatever he wants with it. He has that right. Third, we need to understand that no one is deserving of life in the first place. We often hear of innocent people dying or a good person being gone too soon. But the uncomfortable truth is, because of our sin, none of us are good or innocent. We are all deserving of God's wrath. And the fact that he has not already taken you and me out this morning is a sheer act of his grace and mercy. And fourth, even in the Old Testament, God routinely gave gave lots of mercy and patience giving people ample opportunity to repent before judgment. Now, with that in mind, we do see in the Old Testament that God operates in a particular way in that time period. Under the Old Covenant, God had a special covenant with one nation only and one ethnic group. That nation was Israel. And anyone who threatened Israel or sought to bring them harm received the fury of Almighty God. They served a key role in his plan of salvation, and thus they received his special blessing. In the New Testament, under the new covenant where we live today, we see a continuation of this theme. God is still a warrior God who fights for his people. We've already been singing about that this morning. But we begin to see more clearly later in the Bible who and what God's chief enemies are and how he deals with them now is a bit different. We'll come back to that in a bit, and I'll explain why we're not out fighting literal battles against God's enemies or throwing people in the sea. But let's keep walking through our song. Look at Exodus 15, verses 4 through 10. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I'll overtake. I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. In these verses, we have a continuation of what God did in rescuing Israel and judging the Egyptians. And don't miss the emphasis placed upon God's control. The imagery in this song describes God as the one who did it, He's the one who took action on their behalf. God cast the Egyptian army into the sea. God's right hand shatters the enemy. God overthrows his adversaries. God blew the wind and made the sea cover them. This shows us that Moses and the Israelites did not see this event as their own doing or some sort of natural phenomenon in nature. They saw God as the chief authority in this entire situation. And he alone deserved the credit for rescuing them. So here's the response. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. These are obviously rhetorical questions, and this is a common refrain in songs to God. There is no one like the Lord. There's no one who's holy like him, no one who's awesome like him, no one who's glorious like him. He is demonstrated by what he's done, bringing his people out, parting the sea, judging their enemies, that he is the one true living God. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. It says, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now were the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We see in verse 13 that these events have also been motivated by God's love. We cannot separate God's justice and God's love. We'll talk about that more in a minute. These are God's people who he has redeemed. He has led them in his steadfast love. This is covenant language, speaking of God's commitment to take care of his people. In verse 14, we begin to see a shift toward what is coming for God's people. They sing prophetically for what God is going to do for them next. As they travel to the promised land, they're going to pass through and deal with some of these other groups of people. Uh, The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. A lot of big, scary people. But because of what God did in the Exodus, these peoples, they're going to hear about Yahweh and they're going to be terrified of God's people. It says they will tremble, melt away, be still as a stone. This whole event has marked God's people as being a nation that has divine protection and a nation that you do not want to mess with. And as we see in verse 17 and 18, they sing with confidence that God will eventually lead them to a special place where they will be with him. We have this image of God on a mountain in a sanctuary and that being where he dwells and it says he's going to take his people and plant them there so they can be with him. What does that image mean? One thing we see throughout the Bible is that God desires to be with his people and to rule over them. We see it in the very beginning with the Garden of Eden. We see it in the promised land of Canaan. We'll see it soon in the tabernacle, then in the temple. We see it in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. We see it in the Holy Spirit, who comes to live in us. And ultimately, at the end of the Bible, we see it in the new heavens and new earth, where God will dwell with his people in their midst forever. So even in these early days of the story of redemption, we have God's promises that Israel understood. They knew God would take care of them, that he would bring them safely to be with him, and that he would rule and reign forever and ever. Here's the last part, verses 19 through 21. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. 
And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 19, we have a summary of what happened. Then we see our first mention of another important person in the book of Exodus. It's Miriam. It says she's the sister of Aaron, which means she's also, also whose sister? Just making sure you're paying, tracking with me. It's Moses, right? And she's a prophetess. We read of several women in the Old and New Testament who functioned like prophets. They spoke God's word to God's people, and so we call them prophetesses. I can't say it. And here, Miriam, she leads the women with tambourines and and dancing. And I want to make sure those of you who who grew up Baptist like me heard that. I said dancing. You heard that? People in the Bible danced for the Lord. (laughs) And Miss Vicki, you're right. When we get to heaven, there are going to be people shocked when they find out there will be dancing in heaven. They will have to move over to the Baptist section or something. <laughs> but that's a, that's a whole other sermon, okay? The repetition by Miriam, she repeats the first part of the song. It tells us that this song was likely one that was repeated and sang often. It became an anthem for God's people of victory. And even though we live all these years later, we too can sing this great anthem because we too have experienced victory. An even greater victory than the Israelites, a victory that their victory ultimately pointed to. So in our time left, let me share with you three reasons straight from this song that we have victory today. Here's the first. Number one. Number one, we have victory because of who God is. This whole song is God-focused. It is completely about God and his character and what he has done. And our worship today should be the same. And I'm not just talking about the songs we sing. Our entire lives should be lived out with a focus on God, knowing him and bringing glory to him. Listen, that's the reason you exist. You were created for God. You were created for his glory. It's the reason you and me draw breath. Who God is and his character is the basis for everything, particularly our victory and our salvation. Just note one of the key things we learn about, this, about God in this song. We learn that God is a God of justice and fairness. And this is a good thing. We want God to be just. No, no one wants a God who just lets injustice and evil slide or just kind of sweeps it under the rug and turns the other way. No, we want a God of justice because that means God must deal with evil. This is ultimately why God punishes and even brings death and destruction in the Bible. His character is dealing with injustice and evil in the world. It's not because he's just a mean God or likes to throw temper tantrums. Anytime God judges people, it's him executing justice. That's what we see in the flood with Noah when God destroyed every living thing on earth. It's what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah when God rained down fire from heaven. And this is what we see here in the Egyptian army. Yes, God is a God of war and justice. He opposes evil. His character requires it. But that should be scary for people like us. Because as we've established, we are the reason for evil and injustice in the world. We are the sin that God must deal with. 
That means when God goes to war, he should not be fighting for us. He should be fighting against us. How then can we say that we have victory because of who God is? Well, because we see in this song that God is also a God of steadfast love. It's his love that he has chosen to lavish on us instead of his judgment. But how can he do that? How can he do that without just sweeping it under the rug? How does he deal with his justice and also show us love? How do those two things that seem to contradict work together in our favor? Well, that brings us to the second point. Number two, we have victory because of what God has done. God's justice and God's love worked themselves out in one single moment in history on the cross. When Jesus died, we saw the fullness of God's justice and God's love on display. God's justice was displayed as he poured out all the judgment and punishment for all the sin and evil in the world. He dealt decisively with his enemies and their injustice. And God's love was on display as he poured it out, his judgment, on Jesus instead of on us. We have victory because it's been achieved for us on the cross by Christ. He, Jesus, was thrown into the sea and swallowed up by death so that we would not be. He died so that we could have life. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. And he has given that victory that he achieved to us. All we did was walk through on dry ground, but our enemies have been defeated because of what God did. So this means, as I said, our enemies today are not some foreign nation or some particular group of people. Our ultimate enemies are sin and death and Satan. Those are the true enemies of God's people and God's plan, and those are exactly the ones God dealt with through Jesus. Think about it. Through death, his death and resurrection, sin has been defeated. We are forgiven, and now we can live a life that honors and pleases God. Through his death and resurrection, death has been defeated. Those who die in Christ go to be with the Lord immediately, and one day we will be resurrected with new bodies and live in a new heaven and new earth forever. And through his death and resurrection, Satan has been defeated. The serpent bruised the heel of Jesus, but Jesus crushed his head. He has received his final verdict. And while he continues to roam the earth today, seeking to devour people, Satan has no authority over God's people, and his final day of reckoning is coming. So, do you know what God has done for you? Do you know that he has secured your victory, that it is finished, that the battle is already over? All you have to do is accept Jesus and trust in him, and all these things are yours forever. Just as Israel sang of God's great victory, we too can sing the same song, except our victory isn't just a physical victory, it's, in the, it's a spiritual victory. And ours isn't just a temporary victory. Israel's had other battles still to come. Ours is an eternal victory. We will sing this song of victory forever because of what God has done. That's second. Here's the last point. Number three. We have victory because of what God will do. Israel sang about their future struggles as already won victories. Listen to that again. Listen. Israel sang about their future struggles as already won victories. 
They had confidence in what God would do in the future because of what he'd done in the past and was doing in the present. And friends, the same thing is true of us today. We don't have to fear the future or worry what tomorrow holds because God will not change. And we are secure in him. God's past faithfulness is proof that he will take care of you. I can't tell you how many times in my life I have faced a situation and I just thought, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make it through this. This is terrible. I'm not sure how to go to, I just don't know what to do. I'm not going to make it, God. And I cry out to him and, and somehow he carries me through. And one thing that's helpful to me is to look back at all those times in my life where I totally panicked and yet God was faithful. All those times he somehow carried me through. And those memories of God's faithfulness enabled me to make it through whatever today holds and whatever tomorrow may bring. And ultimately, I know I have victory because I know how this whole thing ends. Spoiler alert, I've seen the end of the script. Have you read it? (laughs) Like, I know the battle's already won. It's over. Jesus wins. We're with him forever. That means there's nothing that can happen to me in this life that will change where I'm going to spend eternity. There is no sickness, no tragedy, no ache, no pain, no person, no loss, no letdown, no failure, no force. Nothing that can change the fact that I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Isn't that freeing? God's future promises give us present victory. We can have victory today over worry, over fear, over sin, and anything that comes our way because we already know what God is going to do. Just as Israel knew God would take them to the promised land some way, somehow, we know we too are headed for our own promised land. And listen to what Revelation tells us about what we will do when we get there. Revelation chapter 15, John gets another glimpse of heaven and the end And he sees people gathered around the throne and they're singing two songs. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. One day we will experience this victory to its fullest extent. And when we do, we will sing. We will sing this song of Moses and the ultimate song it pointed to, the song of the Lamb, Jesus. That's where we're going if you trust in him. So let me close with this question. What would it look like for you to live in that victory now? How would that look in your life if you really believe this? If you just passed through the Red Sea on dry ground and you experienced the salvation of Jesus and you knew that you were eternally secure, how might that change the way you live? That's our call. That's the call of all those who follow Jesus. We live on the other side of the sea. We live singing this song of our salvation together. We live in light of and because of our victory in Jesus. Let's pray.